MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. All right, welcome to episode 10 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. We have an unbelievable interview coming up. Please don't just fast forward to that part, though. Like, Anyway, I'm Andrew Torres, and with me, excited beyond words. Yes, and I'm AG. And before we get to the A block, before we get to the A block and the announcement of our incredible interview, I want to thank our newest patrons, Patricia Carrasco, Den- Dan Benegar, uh, Potato Face, Taryn Powell, Three kobolds in a trench coat. <laughs> Skylar Veristecki. I unsubscribed some from some fox titties for you. Maxwell Skipworth and Spaceball One. They've gone to plaid. <laughs> some fantastic names. Thanks also to new patrons Nicole Heil, Susan Harold, Steph DeMonico, Jason and Elizabeth McQueen. I promise I didn't just give you all the fun ones. It's just this is just mm-hmm. how it this is just how it broke down. Mm-hmm. FNB nine ninety seven, Tom Dunn, Taylor Losher, and Scoop Bucky. Ah, uh, Scoop Bucky is pretty good. It's no I, I unsubscribed from some Fox titties for you, <laughs> but it's good. So. It is. Uh, uh, connection all the way over to uh our good friends at Ice Cream Social. So thanks to all of you for supporting the show, uh, which you can do uh, over at patreon.com slash aisle 45 pod for as little as a buck an episode. And if we may tempt you, if you can pony up two American dollars, that's it. You get the chance to play bar trivia against me and AG over Zoom. Bunch of groups have already formed. Uh, there's some smack talk already developing oh. on the Patreon thread. Mm. Uh, so uh, get in. You can be a team of up to five and uh, it's just going to be me and AG by ourselves. I mean, you know, we're, we're obviously still going to win, but uh, yeah. 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 Right. yeah. And you can also pick your team name, which you need to do. And that's kind of all rest with the team name. My my championship uh, pub trivia team was Team Awesome. I was also part of a <laughs> <laughs> of a team called Kick Astley instead of Ooh. Rick Astley. Yeah. I like I like that. A little, little, little Rick rolling there for us. That's good. Yes. And, and now we're going to have to find a segue from Rick rolling to sedition. And I'm not sure <laughs> how to make that happen. But uh, how about just... Here's a segue into sedition from Rick Astley. So the former guy's former interim U.S. attorney for D.C., Michael Sherwin, went on 60 Minutes and said that he thinks charges of seditious conspiracy could be brought against certain defendants in the January 6th insurrection. And during the interview, Sherwin said, I personally believe the evidence is trending toward that and possibly meets those elements. So what does that mean, Andrew? Yeah. So 
Seditious Conspiracy is 18 U.S.C. Section 2384, and I'm going to elide over the parts that don't matter, but it says, if two or more persons conspire to overthrow the government of the United States, right, or by force to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States. That sounds very important in this particular situation. Yeah. Or, and again, these are all disjunctive, by force to seize, take, or possess any property of the United States contrary to the authority thereof, they shall each be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 20 years or both. Ah. And so um, this is, it is, it is, Fair to say this is a rarely charged statute, Um, but that's not because there's some inherent defect in this law. It's because people rarely do the kinds of things that seem to meet like the plain text uh, of this statute. It does not require, I mean, you know, conspire is something that uh, courts are, uh, you know, that the prosecutors are very well trained to prove and juries adjudicate every single day. Um, and you just need to conspire to do one of those three things, overthrow the government, uh, hinder, prevent, or delay the execution of any law or seize, take, possess any property by force. Now you, you mentioned that those are disjunctive or, or, or not. And, 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 and I think that that's really important, but I do have a question for you, le- uh, like legal practical application here, <laughs> because the, I think the last time we saw a sedition charge was in 2010 with a Michigan militia, and the judge found that they did not prove that there was a, like a hardcore conspiracy going on. Do, as a prosecutor, do you have to say which element of this statute you are uh, filing the charges under like for example do you have to say uh that that we're filing um sedition charges specifically by about the force to prevent hinder or delay the execution of any law of the united states part or can you just say well i mean i i've i've read a lot of charging documents and you usually go through and say how these crimes were committed right and and what part they fit under but i mean does do you can you just say we're doing it under the the whole thing and you pick which of the three (laughs) or or do you have to kind of be more specific no um so in the charging documents and again until you get a jury instruction at the end of trial um you you do not have to pick um and part of the reason for that is everything i read to you is all part of 2384. There are no subparts. There's no A, B, C, or D. There are no consecutive uh, uh, sections. So sometimes when you see related offenses, it's because, you know, you could be charged with a 1001A or a 1001B, right? And they will specify, oh, this is subsection B. Um, all of those were in the same basic section so um yeah you just you charge 2384 and then we figure out a trial um you know exactly what meets what particular criterion um you are correct about the last time uh seditious conspiracy uh, as, as far as i can tell um was uh, uh went to trial um and uh and again it is because as we go through some of these other earlier cases right you don't have people storming and occupying the Capitol, mm. right? Right. So, um, you know, I, so I'm not, I am not convinced that this is uh, reaching. So, 
Yeah, especially the any law of the United States part, right? Yep. yep. <laughs> and and that 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 certification of the election results is a law. Yeah. And uh, the problem here, I don't trust Mike Sherwin. I don't either. I think you're right to do that. But look, like if this were blank boxman that gave that 60 minutes interview, you'd be thrilled, right? Because Sherwin not only said. I think charges of seditious conspiracy are appropriate here. Um, he said uh, that he personally witnessed some of the events, right? Noticing people in Kevlar uh, vests, helmets, tactical gear leave early while he accompanied the D.C. police to the former guy's rally. Um, and um, I I do not know why this was cut from the interview, um, but apparently uh, 60 Minutes reported that he debunked claims about Antifa posing as Trump supporters um, and then uh, and went on to discuss, you know, whether um, folks who received a tour uh, of the Capitol grounds before January 6th were, quote, casing or doing reconnaissance runs. So, like, those are all the kinds of things that you would want the lead prosecutor to to say. So, yeah. And this isn't the first time Sherwin has said this, right? Back yep. on January 26th, he told the Washington Post, we're closely looking at evidence related to sedition charges. So that's why this didn't seem like major breaking news to me. Uh, and he said, we're working on those cases. I think the results will bear fruit very soon. And in the B block, we're going to talk with someone who thinks his talking about it publicly is a mistake. Yeah. And I am so excited for that. <laughs> but look, as a lawyer analyzing this, right, I I. I think Sherwin's correct, right? I read you the statute. This is not like the old Alien and Sedition Acts, right, where you're punishing speech. What you're punishing here is action. You are punishing serious crimes. Um, and and it's true that it's rarely invoked, like like I said, but um, I, I think we had a, a, a closer fit in 1987, um, the Fort Smith sedition trial, right, where a bunch of white supremacists who wanted to overthrow the government and establish an all-white nation were indicted and they were charged with seditious conspiracy. Okay, but weren't the Fort Smith defendants acquitted? I, uh, fair. <laughs> <laughs> but but look, that's because that, that that's really for two reasons. Number one— um, the case was nowhere near as well developed as this, right? Like the uh, the actions in furtherance of the conspiracy were things like, um, uh, you know, were ancillary crimes setting up to the long term goal of overthrowing the government, not occupying the capital, mm. right? So that's kind of point one, and then point two, um, the the prosecution cut a deal with the leader of the actual group itself that um, it was like the order of the cross and I, some kind of crazy ass, you know, <laughs> white supremacist group, um, a guy named Jim Ellison after Jim Ellison got 20 years on Rico. Right. And then he said, okay, so can you come in and testify against everybody else? And Ellison said, well, can I get some cooperation credits? And they said, sure, fine. And, and look, when you have the head guy testifying against the underlings, that that often doesn't look great to a jury. Yeah, no, and you know we've we've heard talk in public reporting that they're looking at overarching RICO charges here, and we have reporting from the Washington Post today saying that they're getting ready to start offering plea deals to a lot of 
a lot of the insurrectionists. So we'll see what happens. But, you know, a grand jury did hand those indictments down yep. in, in, in the Fort Smith case. So at least they made a determination that probable cause existed to convict based on the facts, right? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And and I think we're going to see that here. I think that is a really perceptive question about who you plead out, right, um, in, in terms of in connection with the, the January 6th insurrection, because we're looking at 300, 400 potential defendants. And, uh, you know, you can't try 400 people. So that that might be a question I ask in the next segment. <laughs> yeah. And like the Fort Smith trial, prosecutors with the U.S. Attorney's Office for D.C., they've charged about 20 members or so of the Proud Boys, as well as other alt-right neo-Nazi groups. And on Friday, prosecutors unsealed the latest indictment. They charged four Proud Boys leaders from Washington State, Florida, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania, with conspiracy to aid aid and abet the obstruction of Congress's confirmation of the 2020 presidential election and police attempts to protect the Capitol from rioting that led to five deaths and 130 or so police assaults. Yeah. And and so there's your specificity in those particular indictments um, that suggests that they do not have belief uh, in or, or sufficient evidence at this point in the larger notion of overthrowing the U.S. government. You got to you got to pick your. You got to pick your battles. Um, but uh, I, I want to kind of go back to something you said a couple of episodes ago um, that, you know, that, that we've just commented that this is something that was incredibly well done during the second impeachment, right, by the House managers. And that is drawing the lines between the alt-right foot soldiers and trying to figure out, right, who did the coordination, who did the funding, who was behind it. So in addition to the Proud Boys, we've got uh, prosecutors have accused 10 members and affiliates of the Oath Keepers with conspiring to obstruct Congress. And I have to tell you, I did not, I knew the Proud Boys were, you know, because our president shouted them out on national television. Um, but but I didn't know the Oath Keepers until the second impeachment. So, mm. yeah. And as of right now, as we're recording this, members or associates of those two groups make up about 10 percent wow. uh, of, of more than 300 yeah. charged so far. Prosecutors have said they expect at least 400 people to be charged, and federal law makes conspiring to overthrow or oppose by force federal authority punishable by up to 20 years in prison. That's big. And these aren't these, you know, we started out with those smaller crimes, uh, violent entry and trespassing, etc. But now, you know, they're adding and superseding with these conspiracy and sedition, potential sedition charges. Um, but that's up to 20 years in prison, including the use of violence to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law in the United States law. Yep. So uh, with respect to your guy, Sherwin, right, he stepped down as acting U.S. attorney for D.C. on March 3rd. Um, That allowed the Biden administration to rename Channing Phillips as the acting U.S. attorney while the White House and Attorney General Merrick Garland select a permanent nominee. This is obviously going to be a very important high profile selection. Um, So Sherwin, as far as I can tell, has been asked by Merrick Garland to stay in D.C. for another month to transition these cases over to the new nominee. Um, And then he will go. Sherwin will go rejoin the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of Florida. Yeah, he did ask him that on March 3rd, and he stayed, and uh, apparently Friday was his last day, and I think this weekend he headed down to Miami. Oh. Yeah. Well, got it got it done in three weeks, so. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We'll see. I still don't trust him. I, you're, <laughs> not, you're not wrong. <laughs> now, we have not told 
the listeners who our interview is. Oh, gosh. It's going to be in the title. They already know <laughs> they do if know. they've read the title. They do know. Um, That's right. And we're really excited to talk to him. Andrew Weissman. He's uh, author of the book, Where Law Ends, Inside the Mueller Investigation. He was one of the top, uh, he was team leader for Team Manafort and the... Um, in the Mueller investigation, and we're going to speak with him about these sedition charges, what he thinks of Sherwin appearing on television, and just, you know, what the frick is going on in general. So we're looking oh, forward to that. Can't wait. Yep. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. It's AG for Clean Up on Aisle 45. Do you ever listen to the podcast? You hear Andrew and I talking, and you want to scream your opinions at us? Well, now you can. We go live on the Stereo app every Tuesday at 5 Pacific, 8 Eastern, where you can ask us your questions directly. Join us for the Clean Up on Aisle 45 after-party Q&A for uncensored opinions. You might even hear Andrew say fuck. And exclusive content only available on the Stereo app. I love Stereo. I'm on the app talking all the time. You can follow me at Allison Gill. You'll get notified every time I go live. And you can follow Andrew at Torres, and we'll take a deep dive into a variety of topics and interact directly with listeners. So download the Stereo app now. You can do that by going to Stereo.com slash Allison Gill. Set up a little avatar. It's super fun. There's a link in the show description. And then join us on the Stereo app. Stereo has thousands of live social conversations from a wide range of topics, including news, comedy, sports, everything you want. So you can choose whether to be a co-host, participate as a guest, or just listen in on exclusive conversations. So we'll see you for the cleanup on Aisle 45 after party Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific and 8 Eastern. All right, everybody. Welcome back. We are honored and privileged today to be joined by 20-year DOJ veteran, lead prosecutor inside the Mueller investigation, and author of the New York Times bestseller, Where Law Ends, Inside the Mueller Investigation. Please welcome Andrew Weissman. Andrew, hi. Hi. Nice to be here. It is really great to have you. Okay. I, I, I want to echo that. Uh, big question that is on everyone's minds <laughs> right now. Uh, outgoing acting U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, Mike Sherwin, has commented multiple times publicly uh, that uh, some of the uh, defendants who have been charged in the 1-6 Capitol riots uh, are uh, likely or or the facts fit the definition of being charged uh, with seditious conspiracy. And um, you've you've publicly said that uh, that that this is a mistake. And so I wanted to have you on to discuss that. Well, I think um, you don't have to be a 20 year veteran (laughs) at the Department of Justice to know that what he did, not just um, on 60 Minutes, but also when he in a press conference was just talking about his personal views of the, uh, these are my terms, the outrageous conduct on January 6th. Those statements are not ones that you make as um, a Department of Justice employee. Um, there are really strict rules about not commenting on ongoing investigations. You're not supposed to comment on your personal views of the facts up to and including um, uh, through a defendant being found guilty. In other words, even upon uh, a charging of a defendant, you don't say, we charge this person and let me just tell you about all the great proof we have and why the person's guilty. Um, And the reason for that is to assure a fair trial um, for the defendant. And certainly um, if there's an ongoing investigation, those people may or may not be charged and you don't disparage them. One of the things that we may all remember is the outrage at Jim Comey in 
um, July uh, of a, a campaign year commenting on <laughs> the ending of an investigation involving Hillary Clinton. That falls into the same category. You don't give those um, public pronouncements. And part of it is it's not your job. It's a grand jury's job to either indict or not indict. And within the department, we generally describe this as either put up or shut up. <laughs> um, so I think a lot of us were just really flabbergasted by Sherwin's well, comments. Let, let me let me drill down on that for, for just one second, which is um, would would the prohibition that you've just described would that cover? So in other words, um, suppose I asked you on this show, uh, do you think a superseding indictment is likely? Right. And and you know that it's imminent. Right. Um, would 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 that cover go so far as to say that, you know, you would give me a no comment on that? So, first of all, it wouldn't cover me, a private citizen. But let's assume let's assume that I, you for some reason had a current DOJ person on a podcast, which, you know, itself would be odd. Um, but they're not going to comment on what is or is not likely to happen in a case. Where that could come up is in court. A judge may say, you know, I want to set a trial date. Um, as a prosecutor or a defense lawyer may talk about whether there is there are likely to be other charges, meaning it's too soon to set a trial date because the investigation may expand and change things. But that would be the forum in which to raise it, even if you thought it was imminent. And you know, this is this is to me sort of the flip side of um, you know, people commented about how tight-lipped Robert Mueller was during the special counsel investigation. And um, I think all of us were particularly proud of the sort of no-leak reputation we had of just doing our job. Um, and this is really the flip side, which is trying your case in the press. And one of the, one of the reasons um, of many uh, that you shouldn't do that is in D.C., there is a local rule that the courts put out that you it's essentially a form of a gag order um, to assure a fair trial for both sides um, by not having the defense be able to speak and disparage the prosecution and vice versa. You may famously remember a lot of issues coming up um, about those rules in the Manafort case and in the Roger Stone case. Um, and so um you know, as somebody who is in the department, I find it particularly egregious when it's coming from people in the department. Um, and for Michael Sherwin, this is such a blatant violation. It'll be to me, it'll be very interesting to see since he is a current DOJ employee, although no longer the acting U.S. attorney, um, whether there are um, sanctions for this, because it typically is the kind of thing that um people can find their you know, careers um, damaged by this kind of conduct. Yeah. And that's kind of what I was wondering, because CNN is now reporting that he did skirt getting permission from the Department of Justice to go on 60 Minutes and give this interview. Um, so I was kind of wondering what those sanctions look like, but also mechanically how this would come up in a prosecution? Would it come up in jury selection and voir dire when you're, you know, trying to, you know, figure out or if, if somebody puts in a motion to change venue uh, or perhaps after conviction, 
on appeal? Would it give an appeal some more juice? And I, so maybe you could go over like how this m- technically Im- could impact negatively an investigation. Yeah, those are all great questions. So first, within DOJ, there is an arm of the department that looks at attorney violations as well as FBI uh, violations, the FBI being a part of the Department of Justice. Um, and there have been those kinds of sanctions when there have been um, these kinds of statements made by prosecutors or agents, usually inadvertently. Here, there's a pattern um, because it, it, this isn't just a one-off. And so it's hard to see that they wouldn't take action here in order to, to set an example. And I'm not surprised that he didn't ask for permission because there's no way in God's green earth that he would have gotten it. Um, your second question, which is really a terrific one, is is sort of how this would play out in the courts. So one is the court itself could take this up. Um, there is a chief um, judge of the United States uh, District Court, um, a you know, fabulous judge named Beryl Howell. She could take it up because it's a violation of the local rules. Um, a defense lawyer can raise it for the same reason and say, um, judge, the this should be taken up by the court because it's a it's a violation and the court can refer it um, for investigation and for disciplinary action. Um, and then um, the defendant certainly can raise this in terms of pretrial publicity and um, wanting to have, for instance, a questionnaire for, so to make sure that the jurors have not been influenced um, by it. I think more importantly, if I was on the defense side of this, I would use it to try and say there should be a change of venue. I'm not sure that would fly, but you can imagine there already is a relatively strong argument for a change of venue, um, given that the attack happened in D.C. and people in D.C. were incredibly aware of it. So we're not quite in the same situation that we once had in Enron, where they asked for a change of venue um, and the judges there said, where in the country do you plan on going where they haven't heard about this case? Um, And the remedy for making sure that you weed out people with prejudices that they can't put aside is to have a really detailed um, voir dire, um, uh, which, you know, since it was in the South, they learned to say voir dire. Um, So um, that's the other way that a um, a defense lawyer would use this. Okay. That's really, uh, yeah, I think that that's really um, interesting because, you know, we had all, I think all of us had tweeted, I can't believe he's talking about this case again before we had heard that he had not gotten permission. And then we all sort of went, well, of course he didn't get permission <laughs> because he wouldn't have gotten permission. Now, he is an assistant U.S. attorney in, in Florida. Is that right? Before he was pulled up to go do. And and we have a kind of a history and you have kind of a history, or at least your work has kind of a history with Mike Sherwin. And I kind of wanted to detail that because because we left that out of the earlier part of the show. And I was just wondering sort of prior to this um Andrew, what your thoughts on on uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Sherwin are considering what he had done and made suggestions with with a lot of the work that your office did on the Mueller investigation? Um, so, you know, we didn't overlap at all. Um, so I didn't know him. Um, I, I don't know that I've ever even met him. Um, and um, to my mind, um, 
my biggest concerns are not um, uh, issues uh, related to the special counsel investigation. Um, it really is more about the way he's handled the January 6th uh, investigations. Um, I, I've been very critical of the department, including the FBI, which I love and worked at and, and think they're wonderful people there. But I think it's very hard to look at the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security and say that their finest moment was January 6th. I mean, it clearly was a huge error. And um, not to get on my soapbox, but the, um, the difference in the disparate treatment of the way in which the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI handled the protests um, here in New York City, for instance, in May, of last year when there were Black Lives Matter protests and people who, uh, there were two young people of color who um, were alleged to have thrown Molotov cocktails at an empty car, a police car, a terrible thing if, if that, that they did, but there wasn't um, the immediate loss of life or, or even the, the real risk of that. They were arrested the same day by law enforcement, and that was on a Saturday. And that day they were arrested and thrown in jail and the government um, sought remand consistently um, in the magistrate court, district court, court of appeals, um, and through the book at them. And that all happened on the same day on a Saturday. Um, and when you compare that to how the FBI, the department, the Department of Homeland Security reacted on January 6th, um, it's it's really hard to think that that is what is equal law enforcement. Um, and as, as many times as Sherwin would be in the press and giving press conferences um, inappropriately, um, describing his views of what's going on, to me, that was almost an exhibit to the problem because you shouldn't have to be asking the public for help identifying people who were committing the crime that was anticipated and right in front of you. Um, to me, that was, of course, now it's like, you know, once the horse is out of the barn, that's all you can do, but it should have been done with a lot more humility in terms of the screw up that had happened in not being on top of their game at the time. Um, now, the one thing I, I would say is that I do think that there is a role for, for educating the public. Um, but here, the line that was crossed was making sure that you are not talking about the evidence against individual people. You're not giving your personal views. But if you're giving a discussion to the public about what in general is being done to investigate and alerting people to how seriously you're taking it or dealing with the issue of how you're going to address disparate treatment of people of color and white people and what you're doing to, to remedy that. All of that, I do think, is an important educational function. And what's a shame here is that that got tied up in, you know, Sherwin's not adhering to basic due process rules embedded in the Department of Justice and uh, and the District of Columbia local court rules. I think your point on the the disparate treatment is is really really well taken. And and one of the things that we've commented on is that um, much of well 
I, I was going to say much of the first wave of indictments, but but uh, that's actually an understatement. The supermajority of indictments that have come down so far have been on relatively minor, right, criminal misdemeanors uh, and 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 other. Um, Violent entry, trespassing, yeah, et cetera. Exactly. And so do, do you anticipate that there's going to be a large wave of superseding indictments in these cases? Or I, I mean, I, I guess that 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 kind of ties into the larger question of. Well, uh, Sherwin told you we've met the bar for evidence and sedition. We've got conspiracy on the Oath Keepers and we're still looking at Donald Trump, too. And oh, and we could have a murder charge if the Emmy comes back, you know, with the bear spray in connection with the death of officer. I mean, he gave us so much detail and it was just absolutely stunning. Yeah. And that's one where, um, you know, I don't know what will happen. That's the and um, I, I just I have to say, I've just not been impressed um, with the way this has been handled. Um, the one thing I would say is that the FBI, um, having made the having been part of the problem, um, at least is not playing to the media. They are just keeping their heads down, and you don't see them participating um, in these kinds of um, press conferences and and talking about what you know all the things that they anticipate happening as it should be and they, they you don't get credit for doing the right thing it's just worth noting that they're not part of what um sherwin's doing um it's also particularly inappropriate for somebody who's no longer on the investigation um <laughs> to now be commenting on it as and as allison pointed out in, in ways that really undermine the prosecution um, it is you are feeding information um, into the public that's going to be used by the defense as they should. I mean, the defense is is entitled to you know make any and all arguments based on it. So um, where this will go, um, I don't know. It doesn't right now seem like this is the most coordinated um, uh, investigation. There have been some embarrassing things that have happened in court, and you don't sense that there is. Um, what I'll call a sort of Bob Mueller approach, which is everything <laughs> is buttoned down um, and meticulous. And, you know, he, along with a lot of other people, hold you to an extremely high standard and things are, you know, really done in the, in, in the highest and best tradition of uh, the department. And that this doesn't feel like that, at least at this stage. The one thing I will say is the new um, uh, interim U.S. attorney um, is terrific. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Yeah, because I think I think it sh I think that's really important, too, because we're waiting for a new for all a whole bunch of new uh, U.S. attorneys. Uh, and, you know, I imagine that the Department of Justice after in a transition has already got some vulnerabilities and then particularly after the four years of the previous administration. And I, I was wondering also your thoughts on this back and forth with Republicans and Democrats on an insurrection commission um, that the, you know, the Republicans want to include an investigation into Black Lives Matter protests and, and Antifa violence. And the, the Democrats aren't budging on that. And I'm glad. But Pelosi says, well, we'll just do it in the Congress. And I was thinking for a for a commission style investigation i would i'm i'm wondering if merrick garland wouldn't appoint a special counsel and a team like 
the Mueller investigation to look into this to get the answers. It seems like it would it would fare a lot better than uh, Jim Jordan in his rolled up uh, shirt sleeves, you know, yelling at people on the on the television. Well, I think there's sort of a lot to unpack there. Um, so first, within the department, um, I I agree that the department could do. Um, in many ways, you know, potentially a better job of sort of examining what happened. I don't think you would need a special counsel because I don't think it's so political that Merrick Garland needs to recuse himself or there's some concern about his objectivity in overseeing that kind of investigation. It's not like there's an investigation into the president um, who appointed him. So um, I don't think you would need a special counsel. This also is an area where um, the inspectors general um, could do an investigation because there are issues about how, um, as we talked about, the Department of Justice, including the FBI and the IG for the Department of Homeland Security, um, you know, that could be investigated by the IGs. Um, with respect to a congressional investigation, unfortunately, um, you know, I don't think anybody has high hopes for how that will go in terms of developing information as opposed to politicizing the issue. Um, and so uh, I understand the reason to want an investigation. Um, it's really at, way out of my bailiwick in terms of my expertise. And, and, um, and you know, I would hope... I have an ideal for what a congressional investigation could look like, but I unfortunately am cynical enough to think that it's not going to come close um, to that. So I, I'm not sure what will be accomplished by having that kind of investigation as much as there are things to look at. I'm, I see. So because I was saying, you know, this needs to be apolitical and you're saying no need for a special counsel. Merrick Garland can do it apolitically. Yeah. And as could as could inspectors general. Um, and, you know, inspectors general have, are good. Um, they have, they have some things to answer for, but uh, in terms of not being, I would say bold during the last four years and looking at various issues, but now, now they're, they know that they um, can look at these issues and there's certainly a lot to look at for the department and for the Department of Homeland Security in terms of how they handle this. Yeah, I I could ask you, I, I think, another hour's worth of questions, but um, <laughs> I, it, I want to talk about coordination on 400 individual defendants. I mean, so much that's out there, but uh, I, 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 think, I think I'd like to leave you with this one. Um, how, how does it feel to be uh, on on the other side of the table now and uh, commenting on investigations rather than uh, being, being the subject of podcasts like these. Right. And speaking to, speaking to the person who hosted the, the number premier yeah. Mueller, she wrote <laughs> podcast for two and a half years. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's both good and bad. Um, I, I, I really like the process of translating what's going on and using whatever expertise I have to try and give insight. That's, that's the fun, good part. Um, and it's also freeing in the sense that, you know, unlike Sherwin, when you're in the department, you're, you don't do this and you don't speak about it. So it's kind of a nice new thing to be able to do. The bad part is, you know, being on the outside where you really want to know <laughs> what's happening and what the real reasons are. So that I think it's very much, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are like, see, 
<laughs> it's not so yeah, easy. Yeah. Welcome. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been really, really awesome. I really recommend everybody check out your book, which Thank I absolutely you. love. I, I chewed it up in a weekend. It's, it's called Where Law Ends Inside the Mueller Investigation. There's a lot of really, really interesting stuff in there that we didn't get in the public reporting uh, when the Mueller investigation was happening. Uh, but I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Andrew Weissman. Thanks for having me. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back after this break. Hey, everybody, it's AG for Clean Up on Aisle 45. Spring has sprung. It's time for spring cleaning and getting your house in order. And you can get a head start by revisiting your home and auto insurance with Policy Genius. Policy Genius can help you set two birds free with one key. You can compare home and auto insurance rates, and you can save up to $1,055 per year by reshopping. That is money you can put towards things you really care about. For me, that's like wine and traveling. Uh, maybe some toys for my gatos. But first, you have to head to PolicyGenius.com, answer a few quick questions about yourself and your property. Then Policy Genius will take it from there. They compare rates for over 30 top insurers from progressive to nationwide to find you the lowest quotes. The Policy Genius team will look at all the ways to maximize your savings, too, including bundling your home and auto, for example. If Policy Genius finds a better rate than what you're paying now, they'll switch you over for free. They do all the heavy lifting. It's no wonder with that level of service, Policy Genius has earned a five star rating across over 1,600 reviews on Trustpilot and Google. If you're worried that this year is flying by and you've barely gotten anything done, it's cool. Take a deep breath. Policy Genius will help you make the most of this month in minutes. Just reshop your home and auto insurance and you could save up to $1,055. Head to policygenius.com to get started right now. That's Policy Genius. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. Everybody, welcome back. What an absolute honor to speak with him. Just an incredible prosecutor uh, who's done an amazing job for this country. It was really, really wonderful to speak to him. Yeah, I, I we could have gone... Uh, 20 more minutes, 20 more hours, a week and a half. Mm-hmm. I know. I had a whole podcast about the Mueller investigation. Yeah, I did, did you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I heard about that. Uh, yeah. Now, uh, this next story I wanted to tell everybody about, it flew completely under the radar, but it's essential in holding the Trump administration accountable for past actions. As it stands, inspectors general only have subpoena power for current government officials. That makes it difficult to look into the actions of the past administration, right? Because of all of our comings and goings, particularly the goings, <laughs> bye-bye. They're no longer federal officials. Well, Congressman Jimmy Gomez, California's 34th District, Vice Chair of the Committee on Oversight and Reform, along with Committee Chairwoman Carolyn B. Maloney and Subcommittee on Government Operations Chairman Gerald Connolly, introduced the IG Subpoena Authority Act to grant testimonial subpoena authority to federal inspectors general. Now, there's something very specific about this, right? Yeah. Um, Gomez said of the uh, IG Subpoena Authority Act, quote, Full and complete investigations are among the most effective tools our country has in securing transparency and holding government accountable. So by giving inspectors general the ability to compel testimony from contractors and former employees, the IG Subpoena Authority Act strongly reflects our committee's ongoing commitment to addressing corruption and injustice nationwide. That is Section 6A Mm. of the new act. Mm. Yes. And he continued saying... Uh, by saying former government officials and other parties with information that could help an investigation should not be able to hide from their responsibility to cooperate with an inspector general at a time when multiple former officials (laughs) have refused to comply with inspector general investigations. This bill would grant the government's independent watchdogs a critical tool to ensure transparency and accountability. So, Andrew, what's interesting is what prompted this push for new legislation. Yeah, so as it turns out, The Department of Justice Inspector General told the committee 
during testimony last month that under the status quo, Jeff Sessions could avoid questions from investigators about his role in separating children at the border because he's no longer a federal official. And Chairman Connolly said, inspectors general need testimonial subpoena authority to hold former officials accountable for their actions and the consequences of their policy decisions. We cannot allow individuals to escape accountability or hide critical information simply by leaving federal service. Yeah. And this bill would grant the inspectors general subpoena authority to compel testimony from individuals other than current federal employees. Uh, It also includes procedural safeguards because under the bill, a testimonial subpoena would have to be approved by a special panel of the Council of Inspectors General of Integrity and Efficiency. That's the CIGIE. If approved, notice would be given to the attorney general who would have 10 days to object to its issuance if he or she determined that it would interfere with an ongoing investigation. And of course, because you're you and I'm me, we cannot help but think about this from the other side, <laughs> right? We, when we win a massive election and then generally in the, in the midterm following, we lose control of certain houses and certain things, uh, it's important to note that this could turn around the other way. However, yeah. I mean, you know, how how have their, in, you know, investigations gone of former um, things in Congress? Let's look at Benghazi and the email stuff. Like, nothing. Nothing comes of these. You know, this is, uh, this is going to heavily benefit Democrats because Republicans crime way more yeah, often. Yeah, and, and look, it was a, a, a joke that Hillary Clinton had to sit for those 19 hours of Benghazi inquiries. Um, but she did. Mm-hmm. Right. And and I, I suspect. Well, I don't think you have to suspect. You can look at her Twitter feed. Right. She's she's willing to take that trade off of, OK, I get it. Republicans are going to abuse the rules. I'm willing to take that trade off to have the rules in place so that mm-hmm. we can stop kind of actual crimes. Yeah, I'm willing to do that as well. But I do have mm. a question for you, Andrew. I, I assume this authority would extend well beyond the racist possum, Jeff Sessions, mm-hmm. and it would allow for subpoena power over any former federal officer that would come up in an investigation. But could former officials simply refuse to comply with a subpoena, as we saw time and again during the former guy's administration, which would languish in court for years? Is that a possibility here? So let me break down both halves of that question, right? The first is, here's here's what the bill specifically does. This is section 6A, page 2, line 4. It says, in addition to the authority otherwise provided by the act, right, that is to subpoena current officials, um, the inspector general is authorized to require by subpoena the attendance and testimony of witnesses as necessary in the performance of the functions assigned to the inspector general by this act, or in the case of an inspector general or special inspector general not established under this act, the functions assigned by the authorizing statute. Um, so what that does is lifts the requirements, you know, the sort of narrow requirements that are currently in existence. So, yes, it it would extend well beyond Jeff Sessions to any witnesses that are necessary for the performance of the function uh, of the inspector general. Now, how is this going to hit the courts? Um, two ways. The first is the other guys, lackeys, 
asserted vicariously a claim of executive privilege. That's why we had all of the Don McGahn litigation and everything else that produced some of the, you know, truly inexplicable holdings, you know, that that then the entire uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit had to get together and and, and reverse that uh, bizarre two one panel decision. Naomi Rao, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, of course. But but all of those assertions were based upon executive privilege. They were incorrect. Um but those assertions no longer exist as a present assertion, right? They now have to be evaluated, right? Because they're not, they have nothing privileged for the current president of the United States. So right? you can't claim executive privilege if you're no longer uh, an executive federal employee. Uh, you can't claim executive privilege on past communications. It, it, you can claim it on a case by case basis where that communication relates to right well that's how you're supposed to claim it now exactly so that's right. why i'm that's why i'm saying yeah. couldn't no, they no, just no. say the it, same you're shit you're right you're right to be to be confused about it because the arguments were terrible and I was surprised. I mean, it was one of the, the biggest miscalls. Well, I'm, uh, I'm not confused about it. I, I, <laughs> I know what they did. I'm just yeah. saying it seems like they could do it again. Like they could claim executive privilege in the past, uh, which is still a bad argument. It was a bad argument when it was in the present, but I don't think that whether their current federal officers or former federal officers has any impact on an absolutely ignorant, ridiculous, <laughs> stupid claim like executive privilege because they're all supposed to be decided on a case by case basis. And and and, and I think it does because mm. a present assertion of executive well here's why, right? A present assertion of executive privilege invokes two unique public policy considerations. The first is the the testimonial need for the president to have candid advice from uh his or her officials right right, um, right and that exists whether you are currently the president or not but the second and what carried the day for example in the naomi rao opinion was a separation of powers argument was an idea ah. that right this is a dispute between the legislature and the president and you as the court shouldn't get involved in that right that makes it uh, an improv, which yeah, I see you. Like it, that's a, it's a bizarre argument. But now, but now we've blown up the separation of powers issue. Yeah, there's no, yeah. there's there is no it's current moot. harm to the president. That's right. All right. So cool. I, I don't think that uh, that that they will be able to get away with it again. I didn't think they would have been yeah. able to get away with it in the past. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. But They'll fight it, but they don't have the separation of powers argument. That's the exactly one right. thing that w- was granted uh, in, in that whole shit show. Yeah. And and look, it is clear executive privilege is not absolute. Yeah, you're 100% right. You're 100% correct in wanting to be skeptical. But uh, ever the optimist, I think that that it does make a difference. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. I had forgotten about Rao's separation of power idiocy, <laughs> and uh, that makes me feel much better about all of this. Yeah. So, I, it, this will get challenged, right? The, it, the, the, if this becomes law, um, th- then uh, what Republicans will do is go to a U.S. district court and argue uh, that this is ultra-virus, that this is beyond the power of Congress to amend in terms of delegating powers to inspectors general. That's not a great argument because Congress has the power to begin with, right? So, you know, it it 
this would be an additional delegation by Congress. Uh, but that's also how I expect that they will tee this up is to say, oh, no, 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 no. Like this is this completely transforms the earlier Inspector General Act of 1952. Um, and and uh we will see and evaluate that argument, but I don't weight it particularly highly. Yeah, and here's the other obstacle. Um, even before any of this law gets enacted, you have to pass it. And I can't <sighs> think of 10 Republicans. You're going to run up against the filibuster. I can't. I cannot think of 10 Republicans who haven't committed crimes. So <laughs> I don't see uh, there being, I don't see this getting passed I don't see this this getting past. Uh, I just don't see getting out of the Senate. I, I hear you. And what I will say is, you know, what I've been saying since episode one, which is you and I and everybody who listens to the show need no convincing on blowing up the filibuster. Right. Right. But 80 million people do. Right. That These are these are people who are pro-democratic who voted joe biden who want to see uh joe biden be able to have a, ch a shot at governing but they don't understand the mechanics of the filibuster and 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 what you see the biden administration and his allies in in the senate doing is building the case right and in order to build the case you've got to take your you got to take a couple losses right like you've got to take your lumps so that you can go to the american public and go look we're trying here, but the Republicans are blocking everything. And, and yeah, so I think the step yeah. one of, of bringing back the talking filibuster, this isn't just to bring back the talking filibuster. It's to take steps down the road to get rid of the filibuster, uh, potentially. And it's also to raise awareness to the American public of what the frick the filibuster is in the first place, right? Possibly I was setting you up to promote your tweets about uh <laughs> gutting the filibuster <laughs> which were uh rather spectacular so oh thank you yeah uh from the old saturday night live dick in a box yeah. um, <laughs> step one cut a hole in the filibuster step two make dc a state step three kill the filibuster and that's the way you do it and that's the way uh, you do complete it. with pictures and gifs and uh it, yeah it was a play in three acts on how to get rid of the filibuster <laughs> and we did have today in the oversight uh committee first hearing uh, today, March 22nd, as we record this, the first hearing for D.C. statehood. And so um, it's got a lot of support and I'm excited to see uh, where it goes and how they implement the the talking filibuster, which they will need to do uh, before they try to make D.C. a state. Yeah. Yeah. And and it is a, another strong sign is the the arguments on display in opposition to D.C. statehood were embarrassingly bad. Oh, did the, did you see the yard signs guy? Oh, no, I didn't see that. Oh, this was amazing. Uh, he, he basically said, look, they have representation. I can tell because they put signs in their yard when I drive to work. So that is <laughs> that is what the, 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 the Heritage Foundation oh. guy said. He said they're, they have representation because they are allowed to put yard signs up for their political candidate of choice in their yard. That is what taxation with representation means, is that you get to put up yard signs. You don't need a vote. I, that's... From the Heritage Foundation, good, good, good that he's at a think tank. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. But uh, yeah, and he had Chuck Todd bangs oh, too. So I, immediately, yeah, you yeah. can't take anything <laughs> that he says seriously. 
All right. We've got uh, another great block of news coming up. We do have to take a quick break. So stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG, and this segment of Clean Up on Aisle 45 is brought to you by Magic Spoon. It is so amazing. A cereal so delicious, you will not believe it's good for you. I've been a huge cereal fan since I was a kid. I would sit down in front of Saturday morning cartoons and eat some just, like, probably a whole box of cereal and then drink the delicious milk after. But as an adult, I had to give it up because of all the chemical sugar and carbs. But... Not anymore with Magic Spoon. As Forbes magazine says, with cereal that tastes this good and offers so much nutritional value, as opposed to, well, none, Magic Spoon may be the future of breakfast. Magic Spoon cereals have amazingly zero sugar, 12 grams of protein, and only 3 net grams of carbs in each serving. It is keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, high-protein, and GMO-free. And the best part? It's super delicious. They have four amazing flavors, super vintage style. They have cocoa, fruity, frosted, and blueberry. It tastes so incredible. It seems too good to be true, but it's not. My favorite flavor right now is cocoa. I eat it, and then I drink the chocolatey milk. I can have it as a snack or a dessert. It's so healthy. It's guilt-free and I love it. So go to magicspoon.com slash cleanup. You can grab a variety pack and try all four flavors today. And be sure to use our pro- promo code cleanup at checkout to get free shipping. Magic Spoon is so confident in their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash cleanup and use code cleanup for free shipping. And we thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring the podcast. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, comings and goings. And all right, I'm not going to lie to you. We're stretching it a bit today. (laughs) Stretch. (laughs) But you're going to love it anyway. Because the first coming and going is that Acting Attorney General Monty Wilkinson has now been appointed as the Director of the Executive Office for U.S. Attorneys. Wilkinson was appointed to fill the vacancy left by Bill Barr. Hey, oh, that's a big goodbye to you. That will never get old, wishing Mm-mm. Bill Barr goodbye. Anyway, Bye-bye. I interrupted. Bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. No, it's totally cool. And while Merrick Garland awaited confirmation by the Senate, and under the rules of the Federal Vacancy Reform Act, you cannot be nominated to permanently serve in a position where you've been an acting head. So he heads over to the EOUSA. What is that, really, honestly? <laughs> tell tell yeah, me. It, it's... Yowsa. It, yeah, it's 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 a little bit behind the scenes as, as opposed to, you know, being acting attorney general. But um, it really does serve two important functions. So first, it's the liaison located in D.C., between the Department of Justice and the 94 separate U.S. attorney's offices, right? So it is the the point of contact and coordination. And second, EOUSA runs a number of really important programs. I mean, important to us, not important to the previous guy, um, including victims programs, uh, responding to FOIA requests, which presumably this DOJ will do, um, and uh, also the Equal Employment Opportunity and Diversity Management Program. So, you know, important stuff. Ah, and uh, both goodbye and hello to Monty Wilkinson, then who heads back to the IAUSA, where he was director <laughs> from 2014 to 2017, and previously had served in a number of roles within that office. So, aloha, aloha. Yeah, hello, goodbye. Mm-hmm. And finally, someone to whom I hope we never have to say goodbye. I mean, only because of the entertainment value. Sydney Powell. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I yearn for the good old days where I could confidently call Larry Clayman America's dumbest lawyer. Mm. Good times. Good, good times, times, good times, yeah. So Sid, Sidney Powell has been sued by Dominion, as we know, for defamation because she defamed the shit out of Dominion. <laughs> and yeah. today... She filed a little court document to move to dismiss the lawsuit because, actually, I'm not sure why she moved to dismiss the lawsuit, but uh, 
it's having having looked it over though just just now as i'm going through this it's fucking hilarious i it's it's pretty great right so um here are the arguments that Sidney Powell are making, right, in, in order, right? So first, she's argued that the D.C. court lacks personal jurisdiction over her, okay? Um, let me, I, just, just briefly, to lack personal jurisdiction over someone is to say that they do not have sufficient minimum contacts with the jurisdiction, such as to have submitted themselves to the laws of that jurisdiction. And Sidney Powell was the lawyer for the president who, I might remind her, lives in the District of Columbia. So, yeah, and she goes on Fox News all the time, right? Like, yeah. The, the, I kind of I almost feel bad for her lawyers uh, to have to make this argument, except that her lawyers are Howard Kleinheindler and grifter hanger on Jesse Benall. Um, so I I don't. But um, yeah. So argument number one, what Sidney Powell and the District of Columbia? Like, no. when, when has she been to this foreign, faraway land? That argument's going nowhere. Um the backup argument is that the case should be transferred, right? Not that there's anything wrong with the case, but that it should be transferred to the Northern District of Texas. And as far as I can oh. tell, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because she has way more work in Texas. Yeah. That, that, w- okay. W- why not? That's um, the connections between her efforts to defame Dominion and... T- t- yeah, no, there's... Th- it's because... That court would be way more conservative than the the, uh, U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. Right. Um, And then finally, the last half is devoted sort of to an argument that. uh, It's so hard to pick apart her court filings. It really is. Okay, so I think what's happening here is words and I'm not sure reasons. The end. Yeah. Yeah. So look, um. Dominion has very clearly stated a cause of action for defamation against Sidney Powell, as you put it, right? Um, so she needs to argue that they haven't really alleged defamation as a matter of law. And part of what you do to sort of set that up that that is true um, is, you know, you establish the relevant legal standards. Um, she claims that Dominion is a public figure. And I don't know that. I mean, to me. That seems like a, a a closer call than you would think. But my guess is that Dominion is just going to concede to that, right? Like the the facts are so strong that she's just made stuff up that that meets the New York Times v. Sullivan standard, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, if, if they were a public figure. Yeah. So, okay, like they basically, Dominion would be like, all right, let's say that we were. You still are fucking wrong. Yeah, that's right. And in its lawsuit, Dominion has alleged uh, that that Sidney Powell and that the other defendants, right, Rudy Giuliani and the My Pillow guy and whatever, uh, that they committed actual malice, right? And actual malice does not mean literally actual and malice, right? It does not mean you have to hate us. It means you either have to have knowing falsity or reckless disregard for the truth. Um, and Sidney Powell has reckless disregard for the truth, so. Uh, now she's left trying to explain in this court filing how she said all the things that she said, but they don't legally add up to defamation. Yep. And this is my favorite part. <laughs> it should be. This is by far my favorite part. Uh, quote, analyzed under these factors and even assuming 
arguendo that each of the statements alleged in this complaint could be proved true or false, no reasonable person would conclude that the statements were truly statements of fact. The statements at issue fit precisely in this mold. They all concern the 2020 presidential election, which was both bitter and controversial. And then there's this, as if to say, <laughs> no one no one reasonable should believe any fucking thing I say. Then she goes on to say, reasonable people understand that language, the language of the political arena, like the language used in labor disputes, is often vituperative, <laughs> abusive, and inexact. It is likewise a well-recognized, unhyphenated principle that political statements are inherently prone to exaggeration and hyperbole. Now... So she's just saying, yeah, no, I lied my face off in, in the things. And so you can't reasonably. Uh, and this is true for any defamation case. I remember when the former guy sued Bill Maher for saying he was descended from <laughs> orangutans. And the, the court said, no, no reasonable person would believe that Bill Maher actually meant that you were descended from orangutans. <laughs> you lose. And Fox News has won a few lawsuits on this with Tucker Carlson most recently, where the, he was sued for defamation. And they said, Tucker, no one, no one should reasonably believe anything that comes out of Tucker Carlson's mouth. <laughs> But these aren't lawyers making court filings, right? Aren't there rules 9B or 11 or some some sort of court rules that say you can't put exaggeration and hyperbole uh, or lies uh, that, that reasonable people wouldn't believe in a court document? This seems... Like she lied in her court filing. Yeah. So so yes and no. Oh, I knew you were um, going to say that. It, it, you knew I was going to say that because that's what I always say. Um, but 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 here's the thing, right? Um, so the standard playbook when you get sued for defamation is to say you can't prove a key element of defamation against me because you cannot prove that the statement or statements that I made were false, mm. right? And so. This is why, for example, I advise some of my clients that pick apart Christian movies for a living that um, if you want to call David A.R. White an ass clown, um, go right ahead. Right. Because you cannot. Right. Like who's to say. Right. He, he can say I. I strongly contest that I am not an ass clown, but like the dude's an ass clown, right? Yeah, like, but I think like making a statement that Dominion worked with Venezuela to to change votes or whatever is is not an opinion. Absolutely correct. And so what this misses, and when I say misses, I mean it is bad lawyering <laughs> for Tim it, Tebow misses it like yeah right yeah, <laughs> exactly on, on a level that would get you you know a C minus if you were taking a torts class right like is that saying something is a statement of fact for purposes of a motion to dismiss a defamation claim is to say that that a statement either can or cannot be proven true or false. Right. And their argument seems to be it wasn't a statement of fact because she was talking about a case that she wanted to litigate. And when you go to litigate, like, you know, you're waiting for a court to decide whether that's true or false. Right. Oh, for God's sake. It's it's a, it's a truly bizarre and stupid argument because at, at core here, I mean, we you know, we broke down. I was going to file a lawsuit that the square root of. <laughs> Uh, you know, 81 is eight. Yeah. Uh, and we, it hasn't been litigated yet. 
So, so I that mean, is not a statement of fact. That is right. that is what their argument is, and I'm and I'm going to read it to you, right? Like in in their filings, they say right um, that uh, Sydney such characterizations, right, of the allegedly defamatory statements um, as <laughs> let me actually take a step back, right? So. After all of the vituperative, abusive, and inexact, the court goes on to, or, or Sidney Powell's lawyers go on to say, given the highly charged and political context of the statements, it is clear that Powell was describing the facts, oops, on which she based the lawsuits she filed in support of President Trump. Indeed, plaintiffs themselves characterize the statements as wild accusations and outlandish. They're repeatedly labeled as inherently improbable. Such characterizations further support Sidney Powell's position that reasonable people would not accept such statements as fact, but view them only as claims that await testing by the courts through the adversary process. That's not a thing. Right. <laughs> of course, it, it, it's not a thing. It, it is. Again, it just breaks down very, very seriously. If I say uh, A.G. murdered six people in an alley. Right. Um, that's a statement of fact. Right. Mm. It, whether it's true or not. Right. Because it can be proven true or false. That would provide if false. I think she just literally doesn't understand what the term statement of fact means. I think, I think when, that's right. I think I think when she hears statement of fact that it has to be true and it doesn't. Yeah. A statement of fact does not have to be true. Well, if the statement of fact were true, then there would be no defamation case. Right. Like, right. It has to be a statement of fact that is, in fact, false. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And and that's why, you know, news stations will put, you know, like alleged murderer in front of murderer. Right. Right. Um, and, and, and that's not because the words are magic. Right. It is because you are now accurately describing a statement of fact and you're covered no matter which way the jury turns out. Right. But you would never say I'm calling you a murderer. Right. I called. And again, let's let's use like Norm MacDonald on Saturday Night Live called O.J. Simpson a murderer 11 million times. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. And that 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 didn't make it less of a statement of fact when O.J. was acquitted. It didn't make it not a statement of fact because the trial was pending. It was the fact that the trial was pending that made it a statement of fact in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this argument is just it, it is it is it is bonkers. And then inserted in the middle of the kind of arguments you make when your client has called somebody an ass clown. Right. Which, again, right. If Sidney Powell had said Dominion is, you know, a nasty poo-poo company that does bad stuff, mm. she'd be fine. Right. But to say that they conspired with Venezuela <laughs> to overturn the election. I, yeah, eh. exactly. So uh, this is truly the gift that that keeps on giving. And um, uh, it's it, it is I, I do not think it will result in the, the, the last answer to uh, to your question is um, lawyers are required uh, to um, assert uh, and and, uh, uh, and and attest under Rule 11 um, that the pleadings they file are are true and correct to the best of their knowledge and based on either the law or a good faith basis to extend the law. Um, I, I, 
I don't think that this means that she's subject to Rule 11 sanctions in those existing cases. Um, but those existing cases are so bad that she's been subject to potential sanctions in them already for frivolousness. So, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Totally. Well, we will keep an eye on this for you as it uh, heats up, which I'm sure it will. There'll be some sort. There's got to be some sort of settlement here uh, coming. We don't know. We'll figure it out. Uh, we'll keep an eye on it and, and bring it to you. Um, Andrew, before we get out of here, I do have another hello. Ooh. Uh, Labor Secretary. We have one. Oh. Marty Walsh. He's been confirmed. Outstanding. That 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 happened. That news broke while we were recording. So. Yep. And now I can say all 15 cabinet level executive positions are confirmed. Outstanding. Hello. 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 Welcome aboard. Yeah, that that leaves. I mean, even kind of the next level down, that only leaves one or two open positions. So, yeah, I'm very yep. excited. Now we just got to get on to those U.S. attorneys, inspectors general, <laughs> all those good ones. Uh, we said there's going to be a lot of work to clean up on aisle 45. But um, yeah, as 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 uh, Maddo says, <laughs> it's going to be clean up on aisle 45 for a long time. Indeed. All right, everybody, thank you so much uh, for listening. Thanks to our patrons. Thanks. I'm looking forward to trivia. We're going to smash <sighs> it. Yeah, of course. And um, looking looking forward to see what you guys come up with as team names as well, because that's really my favorite part. This is why I do this. Uh, any any final thoughts before we get out of here? Nope. All right, everybody, we will see you next week on Clean Up on Aisle 45. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres and is engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazzell and Starburns Audio. Fact-checking and research by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with quality assurance and media by Muller She Wrote LLC. Branding design and logo by Starburns Audio and Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our copy is written by Jesse Egan. Our music is written and recorded by Adam Orr and Christopher Hoffey and our opening sequence was designed by Allison Gill and mixed by Mackenzie Mazzell and Starburns Audio. Follow us on Twitter at Aisle45Pod and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss our cleanup on aisle 45 after party over on the Stereo app. We'll be going live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 Eastern, and we want to hear from you. Our first Stereo show went a little bit like this. These big corporations are donating money to politicians that are trying to suppress the vote. uh, And that public pressure got them to come out and go, we oppose this, right? So your voice does matter. People just like you um, have have made a difference. Um, and I love, you're going to hear this on tomorrow's cleanup, um, but Allison has a spectacular analogy that I'm not going to spoil on tonight's Q&A um, involving uh, the, the fact that these Republican efforts target Republicans as well, right? And so um, <laughs> oh, yeah. it, 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 it's so good and I don't want to spoil it. Um, but but their thought process is, yeah, we don't care if we, uh, you know, wind up suppressing some Republican votes because we're suppressing more Democratic votes. Um, and that gives you an opportunity to build coalitions with people who care about having their voices. Doesn't Can you build a coalition with Uncle Frank? No, you, you can't. Um, but there are a lot of working class pro-Trump people who are like, yeah, you know what? Um I'd kind of like to be able to vote on the weekend because, you know, I work second shift and uh, uh, otherwise like voting in person on a Tuesday sucks. Right. Yeah. Lots of opportunities like that. So um, I, I hear you. Don't don't put aside the despair uh, and and uh, and focus on the on the positive. And hopefully we've given you some um, some concrete uh, options there.
Stereo app is live social conversations, and they're awesome. And we want to talk directly with you, our listeners. So you can join our show, ask questions about news, politics, or anything. And you can share your experiences and opinions. We want to hear it all. So download now and join us live this week. Link to our show in the description and join us over on the Stereo app.